What's up, guys? Welcome back to the MMA Meeting. Let's talk with the Weasel Podcast, where we talk all things MMA. It's been a few weeks since my last podcast, and what's going on in MMA? A lot, actually. So first, I want to just get it right off the bat. Nate Diaz came out and talked about the Connor and Don Cerrone fight, and he kind of went back on what he said on Twitter. So he tweeted that the fight was fixed. And then with ESPN, he goes and says that Donald Cerrone is a guy who doesn't care if he wins or loses. So it was pretty much a given fight for Conor McGregor. It wasn't going to be that hard for him when he's fighting a guy who just doesn't care what the outcome of the fight is going to be. And then he says that he's going to keep a close eye for the next coming months and he'll come back when the opportunity is right. Which goes and tells me that when he said the fight was fixed, my original theory about it was that Diaz was just putting his name in the hat. He was just putting his name out there making himself relevant and that's what this pretty much shows me what he was doing or he was just saying that the fight was fixed in terms of the matchmaking Don Cerrone is a good fight for Conor McGregor to make his return and it looks spectacular in the process the whole fixed thing man I made a video about it some people are still believing the fight is fixed and that the UFC fixes fights and I don't know man I've seen a lot of people tell me that there's nothing that can convince them and when you go and say that nothing can convince you nothing can counter your argument that's just blatantly being ignorant And anybody who's willfully being ignorant of any situation, of any argument, nothing they say holds merit at all. Like, even me, I'd be open if someone had a good argument that the fight was fixed. Like, I would hear it out. You know, I'm not going to just say, oh, there's nothing that can tell me that it isn't. No, it's just way more logical. The arguments are much stronger. The evidence is much stronger as to the fight not being fixed. And that's just how you go about debating this whole thing. So the whole Joe Rogan and Stephen A. Smith thing. This is a lot of people are asking me about. What are my thoughts on Stephen A. Smith and Joe Rogan's quote-unquote beef? And I literally saw an article today. You know those articles are going to come out and throw this just untruthful title out there. They have beef. Well, cool it with the beef. That's kind of strong to say between Joe Rogan and Stephen A. Smith, right? No beef, just a disagreement. And another one said that Stephen A. Smith is dropping truth bombs on Joe Rogan. Hilarious. Well, the whole thing is Stephen A. Smith is wrong. And he says that he's right. And he says that Joe Rogan's wrong. Well, he's very much wrong. Because initially, what he said was that Donald Cerrone quit. Alluding to the fact that Donald Cerrone is not a fighter enough to take that kind of punishment and give it back. He said that he got hit more than Conor McGregor and all this stuff. He was kind of really disrespecting Donald Cerrone. And that is something we're not really used to in MMA. Yeah, in basketball and all these other mainstream sports, it's a lot easier and it has a lot more tolerance for that kind of talk. But when you're talking about MMA or boxing or other combat sports where the circumstances are a lot different, you are disrespecting that fighter personally. Fighting is the ultimate form of art. It's the ultimate form of expression. Whatever a fighter shows you out there, especially when they're getting beaten down, that is what their person is. That's pretty much who they are inside. They are mentally and emotionally naked to everybody in attendance and everybody watching. And they are forced to do that. Because when you're finding another trained killer in someone like Conor McGregor for this case, and he's throwing hammers at your head trying to take you out, In that moment of the fight, it becomes almost like fighting for survival, right? It becomes very primal for these fighters. That's why you see fighters who aren't even the aggressive type in real life. They become that inside the cage because it's forced upon them to do that in order to win this survival game of theirs. It's life hazardous. Permanent damage can be caused. And at this level, the level that Donald Cerrone is fighting, there is no quitting mentality at that. It's extremely disrespectful to claim him as a quitter when he has to face these dangerous situations here. The man got his face broken within seconds of the fight. And to just brush that aside as, you got shouldered on your nose, you know, it's like no big deal. It's hilarious. I mean, those are some keyboard warrior remarks, if I ever heard them. Stephen A. Smith, if he wants to test himself, Gary Tone and put out a challenge for him. 
He'll fight Stephen A. Smith and only use his shoulder as a weapon. Nothing else. Stephen A. Smith can use anything he wants, even illegal strikes. And to be honest, I don't even think that fight should be sanctioned ever. Shoulder strikes just from Gary Tonin is enough to completely strip down Stephen A. Smith to humiliation. That sounds like some kind of porn. It's just disrespectful, right? Some people will say, oh, he's just creating drama for the attention. The fight's already over. The fight's over. There's no promoting it anymore. It's done. It just finished. And the other thing is we don't need a guy like Stephen A. Smith to promote a fight, obviously, right? Sometimes it can help, but it can also hurt the perception of the sport and hurt the perception of these world-class fighters. We can leave it to the fighters and we leave it to the actual promoter to do that job because that is kind of their job and they do it flawlessly. So there's no need to add some more drama after the fight happened, right? Because everybody already watched it. And the mistake a lot of these casual fans and casual reporters go and make is they compare this sport to other sports. I understand a lot of people want to see this as a mainstream sport, but it is not your usual mainstream sport. It's one of the oldest, one of the most historical category in sports, but it's much more than just kicking a ball or throwing it. If some people want to make the argument that basketball players, football players, they all do this sort of thing where they also show themselves out there, not to this level, man. There aren't the same kind of circumstances. There aren't the same kind of consequences for their actions out there. American football is probably a little bit different, but your usual basketball, baseball, football, or soccer, the bigger sports worldwide, if we have an off night, oh, we'll get it back next week. For fighting, there is no next week. Your next fight can come three, four months from now, and you gotta live with the narrative for three, four months. And in Don Cerrone's case, where his face got busted up, we're probably not gonna see him until later this year. There is no, oh, I'll pick it up next week. Oh, I'll pick it up in practice. Oh, I'll pick it up during this scrimmage. You know, oh, this game, we can kind of take it off a bit because the game doesn't matter as much as, let's say, you know, some bigger, major sports event. Every fight is major. Every single one. And the consequences are, as Joe Rogan says, dire. And to say that Joe Rogan's wrong for what he said, that he believes that what Stephen A. Smith was saying is not good for the sport. It's not a good look. And he understands that Stephen A. Smith and guys like Skibalis, they amp it up right? They amp up their personalities for the casual fans. And I understand why they do that. I understand why they get paid so much to do that. Because frankly, the casual fans think the same way for the most part. If you've ever been around casual fans during a big fight, if you've ever been like to a sports bar and they're watching the fights and stuff, you see that the talk is very similar to what Stephen A. Smith says. Oh, that fighter sucks. Oh, he shouldn't be in there. He's garbage. He quit. What are you talking about? You're going to get dropped by that, man. I could take those kind of shots. Like, you hear this stuff all the time. And the way Smith and guys like Bayless talk, it caters to them and it draws their attention a lot easier because it's relatable. It's exactly what they think about, so they tune on. I mean, it becomes like an airtight naivety echo chamber. And I can actually see how it's hard for a lot of those casual fans to get out of that space. So in a way, it can be very negative because it kind of makes casual fans sure of themselves about what they're talking about. Because when they hear it from a guy on TV who's sitting at a desk with some other guy across from him and they both have suits on, and he's saying the same thing that a casual fan is saying that's watching the screen, it brings assurance to the casual fan. You know, it's almost like, oh yeah, look, he's, I knew what I was saying is right. You know, Stephen A. Smith is saying it too. I knew what I was right. I know what I'm talking about. These guys are just haters. You know, that, that's the sort of mentality that goes on. This is why you see more intelligent or educated uh, fans. They'll listen to like Jack Slack. You know, they'll listen to like BJJ Scout. They'll listen to like Luke Thomas and stuff like that, right? Rather than Stephen A. Smith and Skip Bayless. And when you look at that audience, that hardcore audience that love the technical aspects of the fight and understand fighting in a lot deeper detail, 
it's a very different mentality, and frankly, those fans alone are a lot smarter than Stephen A. Smith, so the expert for the casuals is nowhere near the same level of intellect the hardcore fans bring into the MMA sphere, and you can even bring hardcore MMA fans, you could bring them into like boxing, kickboxing, wrestling, and they'll still know more than the casual fans expert, right? So I do understand the whole thing about Stephen A. Smith and the way he talks. So me personally, I wasn't too offended by it because it's been going on for a very, very long time. But at the end of the day, the progression of information about the sport, it will hold casual fans back of transitioning and crossing that line to become a hardcore fan right? That's why I'm glad to see Joe Rogan or something like that actually talk back to Stephen A. Smith live. And that's something you don't normally see on that level to the point where Stephen A. Smith is like, okay, you do no more. I agree with you at the end of the day. It's usually just disagreement, disagreement, two guys arguing back and forth. And even a guy like Max Kellerman, who knows a little bit more about boxing than Stephen A. Smith, it seems to me like he won't go over the top and try to dominate Stephen A. Smith in the argument. But if they were on another platform, let's say on a podcast, if Stephen A. Smith came onto the Joe Rogan podcast and they had this kind of argument, you'll see a very different demeanor and a very different energy about how Joe Rogan probably go about it and argue with Stephen A. Smith to the point where it's like, yeah, man, I probably shouldn't have said it. I probably shouldn't have said that stuff, but there's probably a reason to, and that is for the viewership and all that sort of stuff. It's very hard to actually get a casual fan and just put them right into the hardcore space. You got to help them ease their way into that. So let's say they take out a guy like Stephen A. Smith and they throw in Dominic Cruz. I don't think that's going to help too much to get a lot of the casual fans to understand the sport. Unless Dominic Cruz can really dumb it down a bit. Still show that level of intellect. But use a very relatable language. Having a more intelligent meaning behind it. And at the end of the day, it's just Stephen A. Smith didn't understand what Jerogan's argument was about. It wasn't about... The fact that Stephen A. Smith was saying that we didn't know about Conor McGregor. We, you know, he didn't show enough for some of his future fights. If that was the argument, then yes, you can kind of agree with Stephen A. Smith. There are aspects of the fight that you just wanted to know about Conor. Can he last longer? Can he go into deep waters? How does he do on the ground? Those are things that it would benefit a lot of the fans' understanding of where Conor really is at if he's going to be fighting someone like Habib, right? Stephen A. Smith is not wrong when he says that. But that was never the argument. That was never the issue there. The issue was Stephen A. Smith said Donald Cerrone quit and he kind of disrespected him, disrespected his character and his person by disrespecting his fighting spirit. And one thing I just want to say is Stephen A. Smith says that he has 25 years in journalism or reporting or whatever he said. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter because he spread himself so thin across all the sports in the world. I mean, he covers like every sport known to man and it's very hard to become extremely knowledgeable about every single sport. And you see that when he tries to cover MMA and even boxing. I don't go and watch his talk about other sports and stuff like that, so I have no idea if he knows about basketball or football. You guys can probably enlighten me if he actually knows his stuff about those, but the fact that he spreads himself so thin, it doesn't really surprise me that he doesn't have that level of knowledge about every single sport, right? And it's just not a good blanket to fall on. I have 25 years of experience. That tells me nothing about your knowledge of MMA. Nothing. The only thing I can go by, many people can go by, is by what you say, your arguments, and if you get proven wrong, it's upon you to determine if you think you're wrong or right. And if you go and say you're not wrong and you say Joe Rogan's wrong when clearly he's right, that also show that also furthers on your understanding of the sport. And now what else is going on? So we got a uh, Stephen Miocic and the DC thing going on right now. Stephen Miocic is coming off of his healing recovery and he wants a big money fight. I don't know if he's serious about it. I don't know if he's just playing with DC's head. But DC caught on to it and he said, just do the right thing and give me the rematch. Personally, my opinion is, I think they should have the rubber match because they're one-on-one with each other. I understand an argument that someone posted on Twitter 
I actually want to catch his name just to uh, just to uh, give credit to him. So at Rockstar Z on Twitter, he pretty much had a good argument that the losing champion should always have to win one fight to get another shot. And a lot of people do agree to this. Now, will you say the same thing if the champion has been defending for a long time and he's been you know just a dominant force? For a very long time while holding the belt. Guys like Anderson Silva, Jose Aldo, GSP, John Jones, you know, the long reigning champions. I believe those guys should get an immediate rematch because of what they've done. They should have like a threshold. If you defend your belt like five times at least, it should be like in some sort of contract that you get an immediate rematch if you were to lose. Now, for Stipe in DC, the rematch happened and it went the other way. So it's 1-1. I believe rubber match should happen because of that. Now, if Stipe never got the title shot and he had to get one more win, and let's say he won that fight and now we fought DC and beat him the same way. Yes, then I would say DC should have one more fight and get back at Stipe Miocic. Here's the other thing, man. Here's the thing that doesn't really sit well with me. And that's the fact that DC did the same thing that Stipe is doing here. You guys remember he wanted the Brock Lesnar fight and they were going to do it until Brock Lesnar left. And he's like, man, they're probably not going to pay me much money because of this new ESPN model. I'm going to go back to WWE and make more money. That was pretty much the only reason, if I remember correctly that uh, DC and Brock Lesnar fight didn't happen. It was so disrespectful as well. Right after the fight with Stipe Miocic, Lesnar walks into the cage and they just like forgot about Stipe. He never existed. Who was that guy? Who was the champion? I have no idea. DC now, so <laughs> let's have him fight Brock Lesnar. And Stipe just walked out. He was very upset about that moment. And then when they rematched with each other, because it was really the only logical option at that point, there was Francis Agano, but he wasn't on the same streak he's on now. DC lost, but not only that, he sought attacked and brutalized absolutely harassed Stephen Milch's eyes to the point where he needed surgery after there's not too many fighters that need surgery on their eyes because of a fight DC's not even a long guy tall guy and he pokes Stipe in both fights badly. More than John Jones has done in his recent career. John Jones versus Glover Teixeira and versus Rampage Jackson was a little bit different. I think he's the king of the poke. Yeah, DC brought something out of their fight. You know, if you can't beat him, join him. Learn his technique and he uses it flawlessly. But that's the other thing as well. So he did the same thing. He wanted the Brock Lesnar fight, the bigger money fight. And he destroyed Stipe Miocic's eyes. So in a way, I don't feel bad for DC if Stipe gets another fight. I'm pretty sure Stipe also doesn't want to risk getting blinded in another fight with DC. He should have something in the contract that says if DC pokes him one time in the eye, the fight gets called off and he gets the win. But to be fair about it all, the rubber match should absolutely happen. And another reason why it should absolutely happen is Francis Ngannou and Jarzino Rosenstrike are going to be fighting in March. And the winner of that fight 100% deserves a title shot, in my opinion, especially if Ngannou wins. And if he beats Rosenstrike, he's on a four-fight win streak, all first-round knockouts up until this one. And not only that, two former champions, two of the greatest heavyweights of all time, people used to think, and one of the best heavyweights today in Curtis Blades. He goes and defeats a monster in Rosenstrike. Come on, man. This guy's just wiping out the division more than the champions are. Now, I'll talk a little bit about the Bellator and UFC card that just happened this weekend. So, Chris Cyborg defeated Julia Budd, which is to no surprise at all. I thought it was going to be very hard for Julia Budd to beat Cyborg. And frankly, I don't think anybody could be Cyborg besides Amanda Nunes. And I actually believe Valentina Shevchenko can bring some problems to uh, Cyborg more than other bigger fighters can. And she has become the only fighter to become a champion in Strikeforce, Invicta, UFC, and Bellator. Puts her as one of the most credential fighters in MMA history also with the fact that she hadn't lost in over 10 years and all that sort of stuff right one of the absolute best fighters of all time and when she fought Julia Budd it was like the only time where I saw Cyborg legitimately smaller than her opponent against Holly Holm their size looked very similar but when she fought Julia Budd I was like what are they feeding fighters over there in Bellator 
I know what some of you are thinking, instead of blades and shades, needles and syringes. But it definitely looked like Julia Budd was a little bit bigger, a little bit more buff, wider than Cyborg. And to be honest, throughout the years, Cyborg is looking a little bit smaller. She actually weighed under the weight limit at 143.8. Look at all the pictures. It definitely looks like Cyborg has gotten smaller. But her power, ferocity, all this sort of stuff is very similar to ever before. And Sergio Pettis pretty much killed someone. And in the UFC, man, I covered the Curtis Blades and uh, Junior Santos breakdown. And JDS, man, his chin has been crushed. Cain Velasquez destroyed him to a level that a lot of fighters don't experience in two fights. You know, only guy that ever experienced something like that was probably Henan Barral. Actually, Henan Barral suffered it way worse than JDS. He's never been the same. He got cut. He was the pound-for-pound -pound number one fighter in the world at one point. The champion of the world. One of the best fighters on the planet. And he got cut from the UFC several years later. JDS is still roaming around the top 10. So I guess his is not as bad as Emberau. But Cain Velasquez destroyed JDS. And the punishment that he got from Nganu, Alistair Overeem, now Curtis Blades, Stipe Miocic. Those were just overkill, right? And he's not that old for a heavyweight. He's 35 years old. Yeah, he's been fighting for a while, but... 35 is like prime years for heavyweight, and that's not even a joke anymore. I mean, look at Stevie Miocic, he's pretty much like the same age. DC is like 40 years old, and he's pretty much in his prime. Francis Ngannou is only two years younger than him. He's going to be 34 this year, and he's like not even hit his prime yet. You know, Curtis Blades, I don't even think he hit his prime. And a very similar thing with Hava Dos Anjos. Now, RDA doesn't look bad technically, but he looks like he's struggling with these bigger fighters. Although Michael Chiesa was a lightweight his entire career, the guy looks massive. Even for a welterweight, he looks big. How were you making 155? We knew you were tall and lanky and you had pretty broad shoulders and all that stuff. But man, did he fill up at welterweight. He looks really good and really healthy. And he just beat a top 10 fighter, right? Rafa Dos Anjos, a guy up there in the rankings, if I'm not wrong. So RDA is a guy that would really benefit with 165-pound weight class. So he's not overpowered. I mean, look how everybody's beating him. Wrestling. That's really all it is. I understand that Habib is the one that put the blueprint out there, but these bigger guys are able to do it at a very similar level because of their size advantage at this higher weight class. I'm not saying that they're better Habib at it because Habib's fighting at 155, he has to drain himself. If Habib's going to be at welterweight, I believe he's going to be able to do it far better than like everybody else does at the RDA. I mean, imagine Habib cutting down to 170, going up to like 200 pounds, and then fighting RDA. It would be a terrible, terrible fight for RDA. Way worse than ever before. But that is why these bigger guys are able to have very similar success against RDA. They're just wrestling to the cage because he backs up a little bit more than he used to. And they're able to drive it and take him down at will. Even a guy like Michael Chiesa, who isn't the most powerful wrestler or takedown artist, he's able to do it relatively easy. But when you strike with RDA, he's a problem. And literally, the only guy that beat him on the feet at welterweight was Leon Edwards, who didn't use wrestling. Which is a big feather in Leon Edwards' cap, because Artie is a hard guy to strike with. Even at lightweight, he was a hard guy to strike with. Yes, he got knocked up by Eddie Alvarez. To this day, man, I think that punch just got right in front of the guard on accident. Because Alvarez was throwing that punch throughout the entire fight. But it got blocked every time until that last one. And Artie still put his hand up, but he just missed. You know, four-ounce gloves. It gets right in front of the guard and connects him on the chin. And Artie was brutalizing Eddie Alvarez up until then. Right, Very few guys are able to beat Artie on the feet. The only guys who have really done it were Tony Ferguson and Leon Edwards. When RDA kind of hit his prime up until now. I mean, we're talking about guys like Benson Henderson. You know, we're talking about Donald Cerrone. We're talking about Nate Diaz. We're talking about Benson Henderson. We're talking about Anthony Pettis, Robbie Lawler, Neil Magny, Tarek Safadine. None of these guys were able to deal with him on the feet. People forget, man, RDA was a phenom in his day. One of the absolute best lightweights of all time. 
He's just struggling here. Now he has to make a decision, I believe. Go back to 155 where he has historically performed a lot better, but it is a drastic weight cut. And I cannot wait for the upcoming card, man. UFC 247 is actually next weekend, man. I cannot wait for that main event. I have a feeling about Dominic Reyes. I really do. I have a feeling he's going to surprise a lot of people, man. It looks very similar to, you know, the Chris Weidman and uh, Anderson Silva thing. But they're both undefeated. Ten-ish fights. Very close to when they fought for the belt. The unstoppable champion that nobody thinks can be beaten. But Dominic Reyes and Chris Wyman are that next generation of fighter that the champion has not fought yet, right? Look at John Jones' competition. I've talked about it before. The earlier run he had, got famous for, was against like the older guys, the guys before him. Shogun, Rashad, Rampage, all those guys were the previous generation to John Jones. Those were all easy fights for him, right? The hardest was Lyoto because he had a very distinct and weird, strange, unique style. Then Jones goes and fights Gustafson, DC, Anthony Smith, OSP, and Tiago Santos. All of those guys are in the same generation as John Jones. They all have been fighting at a very similar time. And those were his toughest fights. None of those were actually that easy for him. None of them were. Just maybe the rematch with Gustafson was a bit easy, but everything else was not the same as when he beat those older generation. And now this is his first test against the next generation of fighter. And that is what really intrigues me here. The next level athlete, the next level power, cardio, speed, all that stuff, technique, intelligence. Dominic Reyes is a guy who learns by watching film as well. And he's been probably watching John Jones since he started MMA. Very similar situation to Chris Wyman when he fought Andrew Silva, right? Wyman was studying Silva for years, man, before he fought him. And the power that he has in his left hand, his ability to redirect at the blink of an eye. Call that redirection and Dominic Reyes will be on another angle on you right there and then. His footwork, his movement, very different to what John Jones has ever fought up against before. And I know Jones has more tools, but Reyes, even against Chris Wyman, showed really good takedown defense. Yes, he got taken down by Volkan Uzdemir, but as Reyes has said before, the only reason why he got taken down is because he didn't expect the takedowns. He expected a striking style from Volkan, which everybody did, right? Nobody expected wrestling. And Dominic Reyes is a guy who goes by a game plan, who goes by what he has researched, who goes by what he sees on film, right? If you surprise him with something different, it looks like Reyes is a guy who gets thrown off his game. And it looks very similar to John Jones as well. He goes by a game plan, research the opponent. If things don't go the same way he thought they would go, he gets thrown off just a little bit. A la when he fought Ovin St. Peru because of the short notice, right? It was a tougher fight than everybody expected. Look at Thiago Santos, very similar thing as well. Look at uh, Gustafson the first time. Even Lyoto Machida was able to catch Jones because of his unique style. And Dominic Reyes has been wrestling for a very long time. And against Chris Wyman, where he expected the wrestling, Wyman was nowhere close to getting it on the ground nowhere close he shot in and Reyes completely overpowered him and completely outmaneuvered him and that is something nobody could really say fighting Chris Wyman the only guy that did anything even similar against his wrestling was Yoel Romero at all like in Romero was taken down in that fight Reyes was not Reyes overpowered Wyman easily and that is very impressive and a very good look going into the John Jones fight I cannot wait, man. Absolutely cannot wait. The co-main event, I don't think it's going to be too interesting, in my opinion. You know, Valentina Shevchenko and Caitlin Chukagian. The reason for that is they both like the counter. Chukagian is a mover. She moves a lot, very elusive. And she fights very similar to, like, a Holly Holm. Shevchenko is like a brick wall, man. Some juggernaut, very strong, and sticks her ground. And she just looks to counter you. She's always in position to deliver power. Even takedowns if it comes to it. And that's why I think this fight is going to be relatively inactive. And that is because I think Shukagian is going to try to point fight. 
moving around looking to strike, but doesn't see a lot of moments or holes. And Shevchenko is just waiting for Shukagin, landing a lot of leg kicks on the outside. And if it ever gets in close, I think Shevchenko is going to close in for the body lock, take it to the ground, and control the position. But Shukagin is a good Brazilian Jiu Jitsu fighter. And I think she's going to be able to defend a lot of the things and be very defensive on the ground. And now let's go to the questions now on YouTube. And we are going to start with the most liked comment that I haven't gone over yet. So Pumpy FN, how a counter versus Mazadal or Gaethje go? Does counter have a better chance of beating Habib or Tony? How do you see Wilder versus Fury 2 going? Okay, interesting. So counter versus Mazadal, I think is such a good fight. I think it can be pretty competitive, especially early on, man. Mazdal has been dropped multiple times in his career already, just in the UFC, not out of it. You could probably count on two hands how many times he's been dropped, right? Now, although we know Mazdal could take a good punch, I think his recovery is a bit better than than his chin, I would say. You know, because whenever he gets dropped, the bad one was against Michael Chiesa. I mean, when he got dropped by Michael Chiesa with that, I think it was a straight left or it was a left jab. It was a very awkward footing from Michael Chiesa when he threw the punch. Mazdal went limp on the way down, but he quickly recovered and then just took over the fight after that. Neil against uh, Darren Cruikshank, same thing, got hit by a right overhand, fell hard, and then got up and started dominating the fight after that. Against Darren Tilly, got dropped by the left straight, got up, started to go by his game plan and start to work things out. Even against Steven Thompson, he got dropped. That was the only fight where he got put down, and it was really hard for him to get back into the fight. Not because he was hurt that badly, I think, but it was just a pattern in the fight that he just couldn't figure out. And if I'm not wrong, he got hit by a spinning heel kick once, or he threw a spinning heel kick and dropped someone. I forgot. I think it was in the fight of the troops. Something like that. So Mazdal definitely has gotten hurt before, but I think his recovery is something, I won't say to the level of Nate Diaz, but it is an aspect that Nate Diaz had that gave Connor fits, right? When you keep dropping someone like that, hurting them, and they keep coming up and keep coming back at you and throwing punches at you, it plays with your mind. Because you're hitting this guy with everything you have. They're going down, but they keep coming back up the same way. It's, it's very discouraging. Because you're thinking, if I keep throwing at this guy, man, is he just going to go out? Or am I just going to waste all of my energy here? So that could be a problem with the cardio of Conor McGregor. If he drops Mazdal early and can't put him away, that can help Mazdal to continue the fight afterward and start putting it on Conor McGregor. But the thing about Mazdal is, he definitely has power to hurt Conor in any given moment. He's a lot trickier with some of his kicks and knees and elbows, right? He has two knockdowns starting from the clinch. But people will say, but Connor doesn't clinch up. But when Connor likes to dive in with that left hand and he does overextend it many times, Muswell is very, very good at ducking under and getting the body lock. He did it constantly against Nate Diaz, who's longer than Connor as well. And from there, you know, against Cesar Ferreira and against Nate Diaz, he just landed those sneaky elbows in there, man. Dropped Nate Diaz with the head kick, and Ferreira just got dropped by the elbows, right? So the shoulders, we know about Conor McGregor he's going to use, but Mazdal getting the body lock is just not going to allow that to happen, right? Mazdal doesn't like to stick too much into the over-under situation. He gets right under the arms, cinches you up, and then he tries to find some opening, maybe a takedown, turns you up against the cage, and now he lets his output go, go to the body and stuff like that. I know body shots are going to be a big part, especially that kick to the body. They're going to be in opposite stances, of course. And Mazel has one of the best roundhouse kicks to the body. I won't say it's the prettiest kick you've ever seen, but it's absolutely one of the most effective. And I think those body shots are really going to add up. And I don't think Connor is going to be the same guy in the third round. Right, first two, yeah, sure. But I think toward the end of the second, you're going to see Connor start to fade. Not only from the power and the pressure and the size of Mazel, but those body shots, maybe takedown attempts, making Connor work. And we know Mazel is not going to really gas out. So I would ultimately see Mazel winning the fight by like a third round TKO to be honest. Now there are a couple things that Mazdal does do that would get him into trouble and that is he likes to lean back a lot. 
when he sees punches coming at him, especially when you see him fight southpaws such as Nate Diaz and Darren Till, he leans back under punches and he extends his hands forward. Against Conor McGregor, that's a very risky thing to do because I think that right uppercut is going to catch Masvidal or that right uppercut to left straight combo, right? When Conor shows his left hand, he throws that right uppercut and steps on the outside. So he's off the center line and he's covering distance past those extended arms of Masvidal can land the uppercut, but he's right in range for that left straight. And they do have the same reach, although Masvidal is two inches taller. So he might have a slight, slight advantage in that, but it's not going to be much of a difference. But that whole thing right there is going to get Masvidal into trouble a couple times leaning back. Yeah, he probably won't get caught clean when he does this, but he will get touched up multiple times in the fight for it. And another thing that might go against Masvidal is his willingness to bounce back and forth. This is a thing you see in his recent career. Before he used to plod and just wait for you and be almost like a James Tony figure, slipping in the pocket, trying to land counter shots and stuff like that. Very defensive. But when he went up to welterweight, especially now, you see him bouncing a lot. Although this can allow you to generate power whenever you land on your feet, you give opponents intervals, and Connor is very good with timing, and he's faster than Mazadal, right? In that forward and back motion that Connor will throw at you with that linear stance. I can see Maslow getting caught with the wrong footing at the wrong time. Connor is very, very good at reading opponent's footwork, right? He did the same thing to Jose Aldo. He moved back at the same time Jose Aldo was going to move forward with that right fake left hook combo. He bounced back at the exact same time Jose Aldo moved forward. And that just keeps a constant distance. He could do the same thing to Mazadal, man. Now, Connor doesn't do that as much at welterweight. Even against Don Cerrone, he didn't do much of that. But we have seen it many times in Connor's career to read movement, even against uh, Eddie Alvarez when he just stuttered his way back really quickly and came back with the right-left combo. And also, if Muzzle is going to try to hand fight with Connor because they're in opposite stances, I think Connor's going to have the advantage with the left straight rather than Muzzle trying to throw the body kick. Because whenever you see Muzzle hand fight with his opponent from a distance, he likes to throw that body kick, right? So he's trapping or fighting with the opponent's lead hand. And from there, on the other side, he's throwing that body kick, which you only have one arm to block with. But Connor's left straight, he can land out on the inside before Maslow can even get halfway through with his kick. And that will also leave Maslow off balance because he's on one foot and drop him on the ground. So there's a lot of actual technical aspects of the fight that Connor does have an advantage over Maslow. But I still think the difference in area of work for Maslow, going from body to head to legs, the wrestling factor, the clinch factor, the power in the clinch, the power in his hands and his kicks, his cardio, his chin... All of those different aspects of the game is what I believe Muzzle is going to use to beat a guy like Conor McGregor. And as for Conor versus Justin Gaethje, I just think it's a bad fight for Gaethje. He gets hit too much. He covers up a bit too much. He doesn't use his wrestling offensively. He's going to be fighting in Conor's game while having a shorter reach and fighting a lot shorter than Conor. Yes, he has power to knock out Conor, but I just don't think it will ever land, right? He's a little too slow to attack from a far range, and I think he's a bit too slow to cover the distance effectively before he gets countered. So I think Conor would knock out Justin Gaethje within two rounds. And who does Conor have a better chance of beating Habib or Tony? Tony for sure. Both are very, very tough fights for him, so I'm not going to say that Tony's an easy fight at all. I actually favor Tony to be Connor, but those early rounds, man, Tony attacks with a lot of risk. And yes, he has a long reach, and yes, he is deceptively very effective at rolling with punches, and he attacks at very unpredictable angles and with limbs that you don't expect. He definitely puts himself in way of getting hurt a lot more than Habib does, and he doesn't have the wrestling that Habib does that counters what Connor's trying to do. So I would say Tony Ferguson is an easier fight than Habib. 
but definitely not easy on paper. And how do I see Wilder vs. Fury 2 going? Well, I don't even know what to say too much because Tyson Fury got a new coach or he went back to like a previous coach before this one. But the fact is, he's not with his coach that he fought Deontay Wilder the first time with. I don't know how that's going to affect this game. I really don't. I have to go back and watch some footage to see how Fury fought with his previous coach, but that was back in the day. So the evolution is not going to be there. The fruits of his labor with some of his other coaches isn't going to show if I look at those footages. But just judging of how the first fight went and any adjustments these two can make, I still see Fury able to beat Wilder. I thought he won the first fight. I still look at that fight like he won. So I do think Fury will win again. I do think he will get dropped again in this fight. The thing is, if he gets dropped again, does he have enough to get back up? Did he use all the sensu beans to get back up from Wilder the first time? Did his chin take so much damage from that fight that he won't be able to get up the same way if he gets dropped the same way? That's the thing with Wilder, man. He's an anomaly in the sport. He is one of the least technical boxers you'll ever see to thrive at this level, mainly because of his attributes. He has the most insane attributes I've ever seen of any fighter. He's under 220 pounds. He's six foot seven. He has like an 83 inch reach or whatever it is, 82. Skinny, long, and tall, and he's the most devastating puncher I've ever seen in boxing. He has an iron chin, an iron will, doesn't give up, will brawl with you if it comes down to it, and he does not gas out, and he's fast with his hands. Anybody can lose to Wilder. That's the thing, anybody. You can bring any boxer in any era, and they can lose to Wilder. So that is why it's always hard to predict against Wilder. You could bring Ali in his prime, and he can lose to Wilder. Mike Tyson. I actually think Mike Tyson will lose to Wilder in like 7 times out of 10, but that's what makes this guy an anomaly in combat sports. The only guy that's close to that is Francis Ngannou, but I believe Ngannou is more technical than this guy. Different sport, different circumstances, different awareness. Yes, it's all a little bit different, but when you just look at their hands and what they're doing out there with it, look at their feet and how they use angles and stuff like that, Ngannou seems to be even ahead of Wilder. But man, I just don't know. I'll go with Fury because I paid in the past of going with Macy Barber against Roxanne out of Fury. You know, I didn't go with the skills that time. And I'm going to stick to what I usually do. I'm going to go with skills with Tyson Fury. And he did win the first fight, I believe. So, And then we go to the next question. Brian W. What happens in the middleweight division if Romero beats Izzy? Man, will this throw a wrench into everybody's plans? And I think the UFC would really regret it if Romero beats Izzy. I'm not saying that Romero isn't a marketable figure or he's not a fan favorite fighter or anything like that. They love Romero, right? They love the way he fights and stuff. But the guy's like 41 years old. When is he going to retire? You know, he might even be like 50. You don't even know, man. He's most likely going to retire very soon. I have a feeling Romero's going to start to feel that age. And I give him, my prediction is, I think he fights until the middle of next year. And that's like the latest I'm giving him. And what that also does is it puts Robert Whitaker back on the map instantly. Because he beat Romero twice. And that would warrant Robert Whitaker to get an immediate rematch. Because he's not fighting Jerry Cannonier anymore. So if I was Whitaker, I'd be rooting for Romero in a way. Yes, you want to avenge the loss against Izzy. But if you want to get back to a title shot immediately Romero is the chance for that but you also have Paulo Costa who just beat Romero as well so you have potentially two top contenders who just beat the guy that just became champion that's just a loony situation I've never seen before and if you think about it that holds the division back a little bit because either way Paulo Costa is the most likely to get a next title shot with either Romero or Izzy winning but with Izzy beating Romero you have guys like Jerick Hennier Darren Till, maybe Kelvin Gaslam in the near future. You have these guys coming back up there that can potentially get a title shot. But if Romero wins, Costa and Whitaker, they get that privilege to get the title shot ahead of guys like Hennanier and Till and Gaslam and other contenders like that. With the lone fact that they beat Romero recently. So I do think Izzy winning is better for the division and for the UFC. And Romero will throw a wrench into everybody's plans besides Whitaker. 
right? Costa is most likely getting the title shot next if Izzy wins. But with Romero winning, Whitaker can actually thrust himself ahead of Costa. And then we go to the stats life productions. If Habib and Tony had their DNAs combined into a mutant super lab to create Kony El Eagle, Fergal Gomedov, who would be his nightmare matchup? Thanos. <laughs> you would have to snap him out of existence. You can't have a guy like that exist. Really looking at it, that'd be a hard fight for anybody. First of all, you're not taking the guy down. He'll take you down whenever he wants. He has an iron chin, Wolverine recovery. And if he ever gets injured because of Tony Ferguson's DNA, the guy's going to be out for like four months. He'll have his leg amputated. He'll be back. He'll be back in a few months. Don't worry about it. Their striking would be a level of unpredictability. You would have to call it its own martial art. Like, you would have to just name it something different. It's not boxing or anything. It's not Muay Thai. It's just, it's just Kony style. Like, that's really what it would be. Nobody would beat him. The closest I would say is someone like Kamaru Usman. Only because the wrestling can rival Habib's and Tony's. Striking won't come close. His takedown defense will definitely get threatened. I don't know who would be a nightmare matchup. The closest I think would be someone like Kamar Usman. Actually, a guy like Henry Cejudo would be a tough one. You know, that kind of style. Really good takedown defense. Amazing wrestling. Really good power. Fast to get in and fast to get out. Switch up the game. The adaptability he brings into a fight. Really good boxing. Really good pressure. A dog in him that just keeps moving forward. I think a guy like Henry Cejudo actually would be the most likely nightmare matchup for Habib and Tony. Nobody beats him. <laughs> Nobody's going to beat that guy. No one's going to be for Gugolmedov. And speaking of nightmare matchups, my nightmare matchup for 2020 is going to come up within the next month. And number two, which of the following fighters would you most want to stand and bang with? Oh, it's in quotations. Oh, you have the wink. Oh, okay. I understand what you're saying. I was really caught off guard with that list. I'm like, wait, what? Why do I want to fight one of them. So Mackenzie Dern, Alexa Grasso, Jessica Rose Clark, and Rose Namajunas. I think Dern's overrated. Grasso seems a little bit too average and ordinary. Fundamentals are there. Fundamentals are strong, but nothing unique that stands out, you know? Rose Clark's a bit more on the other side, a bit more strange. Her stand-up isn't my preferred style, but there's something about it that I like, and I don't know what it is. But at the end, I will say that Rose's stand-up style is the most intriguing out of the list, especially with hair. And then we go to Star. Conor McGregor versus top 15 welterweights. Now, this is going to be a thing, right? Is he going to stay there? I think it's not a good idea if he stays there, to be honest. You know, even if you can have a couple good wins at welterweight, I think the wear and tear fighting bigger guys and training for bigger guys is going to accumulate very, very quickly. But let's look at the rankings here. So... Connor is actually number 15. I didn't know that. Oh, wait, they have new pound for pound rankings? They have a men's pound for pound ranking and a woman's pound for pound ranking. Interesting. So for the men's, so Daniel Cormier, Adesanya, Usman, Volkanovski all went up one. So they're five, six, seven, and eight. Number nine is Connor McGregor. How is he ahead of Tony Ferguson? I guess you can. No, you can't. Eh. Tony fought at welterweight as well. He has more wins at welterweight than Connor does. And he's on his incredible. Yeah, I would say Tony's above Connor McGregor. Definitely. Max Holloway went up two to 11. Dustin Poirier is now number. Number 12, Tyron Woodley's 13, Whitaker and Hori Maslow have come into the top 15 at number 14 and 15, respectively. And the women's pound for pound rankings, I think we can all kind of guess how this is going to look. So Amanda Nunes, Valentina Shevchenko, Weili Zhang, the champions, obviously, Jessica Andraj, and then Rose Namajunas, and then Joanna. So you have three straw weights right after that, which shows you the strength of that division. And then Holly Holm, Jermaine Durandamy. How is Holly Holm above GDR? GDR has been doing a lot better in her career. And she beat Holly Holm at the higher weight class. So I don't even know how that makes sense. Then you have some of the next contenders. Tatiana Suarez, Caitlin Chukagian, Aspen Ladd, Jessica I. 
Really? Juliana Pena, Claudia, and then Nina Ansaroff. Okay, very interesting, right? So interesting, Conor McGregor is number 15. Against Vicente Luque, I think he beats Luque. Luque gets hit a little bit too much. He doesn't move his head at all. And he's pretty plodding and not the quickest fighter. Anthony Pettis would be actually a pretty interesting fight. But I'm going to go with Conor because Anthony Pettis moving on the back foot. It's going to be hard for him to use his kicks. And he doesn't deal well with pressure. And his boxing will be very much exploited. Gilbert Burns, too wild on the feet. Takedowns, I think, will get thwarted. Jeff Neal, now that's going to be a very dangerous fight. Right now, right now, I think Connor would beat him. Jeff Neal has gotten caught in his fight with Nico Price. He has the fundamentals down when it comes to striking, but I think he's just not as fast as Conor McGregor, and he doesn't have the experience yet. I think in the near future, Jeff Neal will be able to beat Conor McGregor for sure, but right now, I'm going to go with Connor. Now, Robbie Lawler, this would be an interesting fight because although I think Connor has a style to beat Robbie Lawler, how long can Robbie stand up from the damage until Connor gasses himself? Because Robbie, he just doesn't answer back to pressure like he used to. But with that pressure, you have to unleash a little bit more volume. And that's something I don't think Connor's going to be able to keep up for more than three rounds. And we know what fourth and fifth round Robbie Lawler looks like usually, right? So I'll go with Robbie for a late TKO because he does have an amazing chin. And his boxing defense is actually pretty solid. I think Connor would convincingly beat him in the first two rounds for sure. Third round might be close, but I think Connor would get that. But then Robbie starts to find the openings as Connor's slowing down and finishes him off in like the fifth round. Nate Diaz, another really good fight, but I think Connor right now would beat Nate. Connor seems a little bit more powerful now. Nate is taking too much damage, and at some point, it's going to have some diminishing returns. So I'm going to go with Connor McGregor in that one. Hafa dos Angels, that should be a very interesting fight because of the wrestling of RDA, but when he gets pressured, RDA is not the same kind of fighter as well. And he's for sure not going to be able to push Connor backwards. His punches are a little bit too short. Yes, he has good kicks, but he does telegraph them at times. And his takedowns are sometimes telegraphed. So I'm going to go with Connor McGregor on that one. Although I do think RDA does have a really good chance of actually finding a way to beat Connor McGregor. Michael Chiesa, I'm going to go with Connor. Chiesa, yes, he's big and strong, but very obvious takedowns and striking is nowhere near as crisp as Connor or anywhere near to even compete with Connor on the feet. I think he's like a walking target. I think Stephen Thompson defeats Connor McGregor pretty handily, to be honest. Does a lot of things better than Connor. Better movement can match his speed. Bigger footwork is a lot more complex. And when you attack Thompson in that very similar stance and footwork style, especially when Connor likes to move in and out, I don't think it's going to get anywhere near Wonderboy, to be honest. Damian Maya, I see Damian Maya dominating Connor. Even if he gets caught here and there, I think Maya's chin is good enough to take some of the punishment, and the size is just a little bit too much. Maya is one of the biggest fighters in this division, and if he gets Connor on the ground one time, it's over. And I do think that would happen. Even if he has to pull guard, it's going to be really hard to stop Maya from pulling guard on you, especially with the size discrepancy. Leon Edwards, I'm going to go with Edwards because of his distance management and the fact that he doesn't take risks. And Connor would have to find his way in on Edwards, who is very quick to get out and has amazing counter shots and always composed. So I'll go with Leon Edwards in that one. Jorge Mazadal, I'm going to go with Mazadal, like I said before. Colby Covington, I think Colby's just a little bit too much for Connor. The wrestling's too much, the pace is too much. Even if he gets caught, he has shown against Kamaru Usman. He has a iron chin and heart for days man so i'm gonna go with colby where is o'connor and just starts dominating the fight tyron woodley now it depends what tyron we get if he goes out there and kicks and wrestles, Connor's going to be in big trouble. If he goes and tries to wing out those overhands, he can get caught. So it really depends what he's going to do out there. Connor's going to be one pressuring him. Woodley is going to fire some overhands out there to break the pressure because of how uncomfortable he's going to be. 
And that's where Connor's going to find those left hands. But Woodley needs to be smart. Woodley needs to come up with a good game plan. Or he's just going to be target practice for Connor. I'll go with Woodley if he comes up with a good game plan. And then Kamar Usman, one of the absolute worst matchups for Connor on paper. Too good of wrestling, too strong, way longer reach power that can hurt him, fundamental boxing, iron chin, an unbreakable mentality, unbreakable heart. It's going to be really hard for a guy like Conor to defeat a guy like Usman. And if McGregor rematches all of his previous opponents, which fights will go differently and why? Well, most of them will go differently because rematches don't normally go the same way. Which ones will go the most different? A lot of people think Max Holloway. I really don't think so. Actually, I think McGregor would defeat Holloway in a very similar fashion. He would just break the momentum every time, break his rhythm every single time, outland Holloway, and Holloway will never be able to come forth with the output to make McGregor tired and work him. I don't think it'll ever happen. So McGregor in that fight might be able to last a bit longer. And if McGregor just punches with Holloway, Holloway's going to lose every single exchange. But everybody else, Marcus Burmage won't go too differently in terms of the outcome. Diego Brandao, same thing. You know, those earlier guys, Dennis Seaver. If anything, Seaver would get knocked out quicker. Dustin Poirier would be very different. I see a very competitive fight. I do think McGregor's power is still the deciding factor in that one. And Dustin Poirier will get hurt. And if you do touch him, even if he's coming with pressure, his aggression does get halted and cut off. Just like when Habib intercepted Poirier, as Poirier was trying to finish Habib or hurt him after he kind of caught him, you know? But I do think it'd be a competitive fight that will go more than three rounds. Josie Aldo, I think, would be very different. Obviously, you know, 13-second knockout is something that's very hard to replicate. But I do think Connor would still beat Jose Aldo. The counter shots, the reach, the power, the output, the precision in his punches, you know, able to target right behind guards and stuff like that. It's going to be very hard for someone like Jose Aldo to use his boxing. And especially because Aldo doesn't like kick that much anymore. And he doesn't wrestle anymore, you know. So I think it would go like two rounds, maybe three-ish. But I think Conor will still knock him out at the end. Chai Mendez, it would actually be very similar, I think. Alvarez, very similar. Nate Diaz, I think Conor will have a more convincing win. Habib, I think it would be closer, but I think Habib still dominates the fight. And then we go to Emma Ferguson. So do you think Habib will panic if he bleeds for the first time against Tony? And can we see Tony gassing Habib out with this pressure? Very hard to know, right? Very hard to know if Habib panics if he bleeds for the first time. But if we look at some other fighters in other combat sports, such as Floyd Mayweather when he fought uh, Marcos Maidana the first time. So Floyd has never bled before, right? And he fought Maidana and got headbutted. The exaggerated response that Floyd gave after he got the cut was pretty alarming Knowing how strong Floyd usually seems mentally, right? He was saying he can't see, panicking in the corner, and it wasn't even a back cut. It was barely leaking. You just put a band-aid over and it's pretty much good, you know? When you're in a state of panic, you start to exaggerate a lot of things that are going on. And Maidana went on to win the next round after that. So, will the same thing be the Habib? I mean, historically it has shown fighters who don't normally get cut or hurt or bruised up, whatever, when it happens for the first time, now it becomes something that they think about even for a second, but that's all it takes in a fight. One second of a lapse of focus, because you got cut for the first time, it could be pretty bad. And the Marcos Maidana versus Floyd thing, it was because of a headbutt, right? What happens when elbows are getting thrown at you for, you know, 25 minutes? Fighting a guy like Tony Ferguson, it's not just going to be one small cut. When you fight Ferguson, he chainsaws your face, dude. Like, he, he swells your face up, makes it look like you got in a fight with a baseball bat. Ferguson gets taken to the ground, and he's just throwing elbows all day. And they start cutting up Habib over both eyes. Let's say over both eyes, Habib starts bleeding. For the first time you get cut in a fight, it happens over both eyes, and the cosmetic damage is actually pretty bad. I believe it'll be enough to affect Habib. It might cause panic wrestling. It might cause forcing things out there against Tony and Tony starts stuffing things, countering Habib. It definitely is a factor in the fight that Habib has never had to worry about before. 
and you ask can Tony gas out Habib with his pressure, well let's say Tony starts cutting Habib, will that also play a factor in Habib's cardio? Because he becomes tense up the entire fight, because he becomes antsy and worried and in a state of panic for let's say the round which he gets cut, right, or the round after he gets cut, that will absolutely zap anybody's cardio. On paper, will Tony be able to gas out Habib? I don't think so. I've never seen Habib gassing out. I've never seen him getting tired. Even against Glaze and T-Bow, which every single takedown got stuffed and he was getting pressured, Habib did not gas out at all. And it was against a much bigger fighter. I don't think Tony's gonna be able to gas out Habib just through traditional means, but with cuts, damage, near submissions, all sort of stuff, and Tony just keeps the pressure on the entire time for five rounds. Is it possible? It is. I don't think it's a likely chance of happening, but it definitely is. But it could also affect his grappling if you're trying to grab onto Tony Ferguson. We've never even seen Habib have to grapple when there's blood involved, right? Blood is very slippery. It can help you slip in a choke, but it could also help the opponent slip out of it. Habib is really good with positioning, but that can also make the opponent very slippery as well. But this can be vice versa. It can actually help Tony Ferguson sink in chokes, and it will actually benefit him more if Habib is bleeding because he has such long arms and such big hands. He has an insanely strong grip. This is something that Josh Thompson said before too. Tony Ferguson has such big hands, he'll grab your wrist and you're just going to get him out. And when you look when he fought Edson Barboza, he slid in that Darce choke so quickly and I think it was because of the blood a little bit. So the short arms of Habib, I believe, can actually make it more difficult for him to sink in chokes and grip it strongly. And that in itself, when opponent is slipping out of what you're usually doing, it could play with your head as well. This is something that happened with BJ Penn when he fought GSP, where the grease gate happened, and GSP's coach was playing Vaseline on GSP's back, and BJ Penn couldn't even get a guard around him. And it played with him. Even after the fight, he was furious about that. And there is a very important detail coming into this fight. The fact that it's in New York, it's in Brooklyn, right? And New York officials and doctors have shown to stop fights due to cuts and just generally cosmetic damage. And this one 100% favors Tony Ferguson. He could be losing the fight, cut Habib pretty badly, and now he wins by TKO. That is 100% a factor in this fight. That's 100% something you have to take note. And it goes against Habib, especially, you know, even if Habib takes down Tony, which is 100% his game plan, he has to worry about the elbows, right? What happened when Michael Bisping got taken up by GSP? He cut up GSP badly with elbows. Well, even though GSP's skin is made out of paper, the longer Habib holds down Tony in the guard, the more damage Habib can take throughout 25 minutes. And Tony is never going to stop. I'm going to be so mad if the fight gets called by cuts. Unless it's bad, unless it's like Tony destroying Habib and we want to see Habib out of there, we don't want to see him take any more damage, then yes, okay, I can understand cuts. Probably a good thing to save the future of Habib's career. Because when you fight Tony Ferguson, you take a lot of damage, man. I don't care who you are. But Habib has shown he never really takes damage, right? Great question. And then we go to Azrav Rizal. Hey, Weasel, do you think Connor can compete against guys at 170 like Kamaru Colby and considering their size, power, and conditioning? And how do you think of fight between him and them would play out? Connor against top 15 welterweights, already went over this. And considering that Askren already lost twice, do you think Connor can KO or even finish him? Thanks, keep up the great work. Thank you so much for the question. So, against guys like Kamaru and Colby, no, I don't think Connor can compete with them. You know, the size, the power, and the conditioning are all over the top compared to Connor McGregor. Those aren't the lone factors, though. It's also the style. It's also the pressure they bring, you know. If you have good size, power, and conditioning to fight Connor, but you're not pressuring him, what is really the point? 
Maybe you could be defensive enough to the point where Connor gasses himself out, which is something like a Robbie Lawler could do, right? Robbie Lawler can be defensive enough to the point where he's not getting caught by anything clean, and Connor's just wasting his energy, throwing these punches and missing, or throwing these punches and they're just getting blocked. And then Connor starts gassing out, and Robbie Lawler jumps on it and capitalizes. Very risky game plan to go by, very risky thing to do, which is actually a slimmer chance of working than what Kamaru and Colby can do out there, right? When you add on the pressure and the wrestling and mixing up the striking and the wrestling. And can Connor knock out Ben Askren? Yeah, if he catches him, but I think the first like 15 seconds of the fight is really gonna tell who is gonna win. If Askren shoots on Connor or even gets him into a clinch, yes, we've seen what Connor did to Cowboy in the clinch, but Askren doesn't rest there. He's not going to just allow Connor to do what he wants. Right into the initial wrist control or underhook, Askren's working for the takedown. The work just does not stop. And I think Connor would lose after the first takedown. But Askren is one of the most hittable guys that has fought in the modern UFC age. So if there's anybody for Connor to snipe at and finish early, that is going to be a guy like Ben Askren. Then we go to dead, 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 dead. Luke Rockhold's chin versus top 15 strawweights. Some of them pack some heaters in their hands, man. You know, Jessica Andrade, she lands an overhand. Will that make Rockhold dance? Probably. If it's a clean one that Rockhold didn't see, you know. But who do you guys think actually has a worse chin pound for pound? Luke Rockhold or James Vick? It's pretty, it's pretty funny because they both have a very similar uh, build for their weight classes. They are the same height. And they do actually fight very similar on the back foot, which is what does get him caught. Wow, it's just interesting. Maybe it's just something about that, that anatomy. Like, if you're tall, lanky, the way they keep their chin out, you know, their demeanor. Like, does that just make you have a bad chin? Has it something to do with their personality, too? Like, does something just make that other than just genetics? That just makes up your physicality. Then we go to Neil Johnson. Name some fighters from lower weight classes. You think of beat fighters from two, three weight classes above. I definitely think Izzy can beat some heavyweights. I definitely think so. I think he could beat Blagoy Ivanov. Definitely. I think he could absolutely beat Alexei Olenek. I think he could beat Shamil Abdurahimov. 100%, right? Izzy can actually beat many heavyweights. But let's look a little bit lower in the weight classes. So, can any welterweight beat a light heavyweight? That is quite a big jump. Probably a few can, like a Tyron Woodley, someone really explosive. Maybe like a Santiago Ponzinibbio, Stephen Thompson probably can catch a few out there. I wouldn't be confident in any of them, to be honest. Could a lightweight beat any middleweight? Ah, it's interesting, right? You think Habib could beat Anderson right now? You know, Habib Nurmagomedov versus Anderson Silva. I think there's a path to victory. You know, let Habib get up in weight again, be 200 and whatever pounds, which is not too far from what Anderson weighs. Actually, Anderson might even weigh less than Habib if you let Habib pick up his weight like he used to. You know, because remember when Anderson Silva weighed under 200 pounds to fight Daniel Cormier and he took it on two days notice? So there was no chance to like cut a massive amount of weight and he was fighting at 205, right? I definitely think a guy like Habib right now with preparation could beat Anderson right now. I mean, it's kind of unfair because Anderson's old. Could Habib beat Darren Till? I wouldn't be too confident, but it is a bit interesting to think about. You know, Justin Gaethje, could he beat Antonio Carlos Jr.? Antonio Carlos Jr. is a pretty big guy, man, but Justin Gaethje has elite wrestling and way better striking power to knock out Antonio Carlos Jr. 100%. And Antonio Carlos Jr. needs to get it to the ground. Can he do it to Justin Gaethje? I don't even think in the first two rounds he will be able to. Maybe later in the fight, but he also gasses out a bit. I think it could be done. I won't be confident to say that Justin Gaethje would win that fight, but it is another interesting example. Now, let's look lower where it gets harder. You know, the lower the weight classes go, the harder it is for them to beat, like, 
two weight classes above, like a bantamweight defeating a lightweight. The gap in size is way bigger than uh, a lightweight to like a middleweight. Even though the weight gap is smaller, the lower you go, but the walk around weight gap is larger, which is very interesting. Marlon Morais, right? One of the biggest bantamweights right now. He walks around at like 160, right? Tony Ferguson has posted many times that he walks around at, at around 200 pounds. And that is only two weight classes apart. But that's 40 pounds difference in weight. But then look at Tony Ferguson, you know, weighing 200 pounds and compare him to like Adesanya. Adesanya probably weighs like 220 at the most. And that's only 20 pounds apart. You know, look at Dustin Poirier. He weighs in like the 180s compared to Darren Till. Darren Till weighs like 205. It's just very, very strange. I think it's because the, the amount of fat and muscle that you have, the higher the weight classes are, the bigger you are. You're able to cut fat and muscle a lot easier. The lower weight class guys doesn't seem to have that same sort of thing. And it comes down to percentages rather than just actual raw weight. But can any bantamweight beat a lightweight? It's a lot harder. You know, even if we bring Henry Cejudo to lightweight, I don't see him beating any of those guys. They're just way too big and way too powerful. So interesting question, man. I'd like to look into that a little bit further. I always was very interested about like open weight fights. If you guys haven't remembered, man, that BJ Penn versus Leona Machida fight was so fascinating because of how different in size they were. Yeah, BJ Penn has so much success in the first round. Really weird to watch. Then we go to my jaw is healing up, and it's funny, he has a profile picture of Colby Covington. I knew a question like this was going to come up. Who is your favorite porn star? For me, Anika Albright is the best. Let me do my Googles. Oh, well, uh, yeah. Um, so you're a man of culture. I don't know, man. I don't have a favorite. I don't go and look up porn stars' names, to be honest. It's actually funny because one of my friends, he's straight, and he looks up porn stars' names, but he looks up, like, one guy. He always looks up, I forgot who it was, his one name. Just because if that guy is in it, he knows it's going to be a good one. Man, it actually seems like he's onto something. Instead of searching up the girls, you can actually go and search up the guy because it's the performance probably that you're looking for. Rather, than, I don't know, man. I'm looking too deep into it. And now let's go to the Twitter questions. We're going to start with at johnwu229. Would you rather be an amazing striker with terrible ground game or an amazing grappler with terrible striking? Well, personally, I love striking more than grappling, but in terms of being a successful MMA fighter, I'm going to say amazing grappling is more beneficial. That is if you combine grappling with wrestling, because some people like to differentiate the two. So the ability to take the fight wherever you want is a lot better than just having one area of attacking and defending. But if you're a good striker, you have to worry about the takedowns when you're throwing strikes. When you're grappling, to worry about the strikes is not as focused on, right? You're grappling to get away from the strikes. When you're striking, you're trying to just get away from the grappling entirely, and that can leave your offensive striking on hold the entire time. And if it gets to the ground, there's nothing a striker can do besides still strikes on the bottom, but they're going to get dominated with position. And then uh, I realized that Bruce Lee used to preach how eye jabs are one of the most effective tools in a fight. And John Jones and DC proved that. Yeah, but it's a little bit different. Bruce Lee used to do it on purpose in a street fight. Now, in MMA, if eye pokes were legal, I guarantee fighters would not be getting caught by them as much because they expect them. It's something they have to learn. They don't learn eye pokes. They don't learn how to defend eye pokes or anything like that. Now they have a grasp of the distance and stuff like that because their other martial arts teaches them, you know, things about distance. If you can eye poke, you can kind of punch at the same range. A little bit shorter with the punch, but very similar distance, right? The angle of your arm is moving the same way. So I think if eye pokes were legal, fighters would not get caught by them as much because they would expect them. Then we go to at Arik Rayford. I'm 20 and I'm thinking about getting into MMA. I am 6 feet tall with an 83 inch reach. 
six feet tall and you're 175 pounds and you've been doing uh, Taekwondo since you were six and wrestling since you were 13. That's a good base. I was wondering if I could get some advice on my fighting style. So Taekwondo and wrestling, man, that reach is going to let you get away with a lot of things, man, especially for that weight class. You're 175 pounds naturally, but you're only 20 years old, so you're going to gain a little bit more weight. You will become a natural lightweight. You could push yourself to featherweight if you are professional and, you know, fighting in the UFC or something like that. But let's say a lightweight with an 83 inch reach is unheard of right that's really going to allow you to set up kicks especially hand fight with the opponent deflect the punches and throw kicks over the top or something like that fundamental boxing is absolutely something you have to work on which can also set up the kicks afterward you know you can throw like a jab to a side kick which is something i like to do i love the left hook to a back kick really good weapon even if you're throwing the left hook to the body or to the head the back kick comes naturally with one motion it's not two attacks it's one attack Boom, boom, one spin. And you can even set out behind a one, two, then three back kick. A lot of people just don't see that kind of stuff coming. And if you have an 83 inch reach, especially with the straight punches, you know, the jab and the cross are going to be really hard for someone to get it past. And then they get worried about the punches to the head or even jabs to the body. Now you can land kicks, mix it all up in that sort of manner. And the Taekwondo is going to allow you to move around a lot, right? You've been doing it longer than you've been doing wrestling. The movement's going to be really good. Now, it's going to be a little bit difficult to transition that with the wrestling. You know, when you're moving around a lot, bouncing a lot. Yes, if you have the explosion. Now, I don't know if you're a fast twitch or a slow twitch. But if you are fast twitch, now this can work in a very tricky manner, right? If you're moving back and forth, throwing sidekicks and stuff, and being almost like a fencer with your lead hand and stuff like that, and threatening the opponent with a power hand, you know, you could throw that long-range jab into the face and go under for their takedown or counter, right? You throw the jab from long range when you see them make that sudden move in, and then you go for the takedown to intercept them. Like, there's a lot of things you could really do, but there's still a lot from the description I don't know about. You know, I don't know if you're fast twitch or slow twitch. I don't know how athletic you are. You know, 83-inch reach being 6 feet tall for a 170-pound guy. I don't know if you're muscled like Adesanya or you're just really skinny like a James Vick or something like that. I really don't know. Um, but those are some things that come straight to my head. A lot of it's going to come with movement and your distance work is going to be like goat status. You know what I'm saying? If you get your hands right with your kicks, the wrestling is really good to counter on the inside. You have the long range with the Taekwondo and your reach. You got the inside done with your wrestling. The mid range is where you might have some issues where opponents stay there on you, right? That's where the boxing is going to really help you out. And then we go to at Tread Stone. Tony has mentioned that he trains for Habib by not having... Okay, this is interesting. He trains for Habib by not having ropes in his boxing canvas to ensure he doesn't back up against the fence. Really? Dude, I'm telling you guys, I've been saying for a long time, Tony is a genius when it comes to fighting. Alright, and given he recognizes the key to Habib's success, the fence, do you think it greatly improves his chance of success? Thanks. If he's doing stuff like that, absolutely, man. But here's the other thing. He needs to also work on the cage. Like on a fence, on a wall, he has to do work there. If he's just doing what he's doing here and not expecting ever to even hit the cage, he still needs to work there just in case it happens. So he knows how to get out of that position and get it back to the center. This tells me that Tony's going to be very aggressive. He's going to push Habib to the cage and be very focused on distance management. That's what this tells me. I'm so pumped. I can't tell you guys. Has anybody ever done this? to fight Habib. Is anybody trading like that? I wonder what else he's doing, man. His training camps are just legendary at this point. Really quick with at Kiwi1044. Do you have any advice of training MMA when I can't afford an MMA gym at this time? Maybe some fundamental MMA routines or workouts to do to keep the habit going. Best training is, of course, with others, but if you're limited with yourself, what do you recommend? Well, of course, there's going to be a lot of bag work, shadow boxing a lot, 
But what I think is the most important is visualizing while you're shadow boxing, while you're hitting the bag and stuff like that, watching videos, mental training when you're at home is very important. It's actually something that fighters are doing a lot more these days. When they're at home, they're more visualizing rather than working on it physically. So it keeps their mind on the game, keeps their mind sharp. And it, you can also just learn stuff by watching things. So hitting the bag, shadow boxing, moving around using footwork drills. What I love to do when I'm not at the gym or anything like that, I love to work on my footwork. You know, even if I go to uh, my fitness gym, uh, for an example, you can even do this at home. You don't need to go to a fitness gym if you have the right equipment. But the quick ladder stuff that a lot of football players use to uh, speed up their footwork, I love using those for uh, my footwork patterns, for footwork drills. And I put a lot of credit to my work with those quick ladder stuff, man. There was a point I was doing them every single day before and even after workouts. I would start my workout with them and I would end my workout with them. It has helped me tremendously to the point where I can always move and I just never feel tired. I can always bounce around and never feel tired. It has become just natural at this point. And you could do that at home. You know, there's these things that you necessarily can't even do at the MMA gym. Maybe there's a lack of time to do it or lack of space and stuff like that. And you could only really do them at home or at another gym, you know, a fitness gym or something. Those are the stuff you really want to work on as well. You know, the footwork stuff is a huge thing. Practice the left hook many times, you know. For me, I had a really bad left hook for a long, long time until recently, actually. My left hook is actually more used than some of my punches with the right hand now and to be honest i'm gonna be honest here i was actually watching a lot of uh fighters throwing left hooks and stuff like that just different forms and the way they like to throw it to be honest the way i throw my left hook now is very similar to like a zabit magomed sharipov i was watching some training videos of him throwing that left hook especially with uh mark henry i think holding the pads and that is how i wanted to throw a left hook just like zabit was throwing so after watching a lot of that I was really working into that left hook, very similar to how Zabit was throwing it. Because the way I learned it in boxing is just something that just didn't feel natural to me. I don't like throwing palm down left hooks. I hated throwing like that. And it causes me to flare on my elbow too much for some reason. It just took a very long time for me to kind of get used to throwing it like that. And I never, it just never felt comfortable. So stuff like that, you know, you could just watch how fighters throw techniques and stuff like that and practice it constantly. So that's the end of the podcast, guys. I hope you guys enjoyed the episode. And if you did, make sure to like, make sure to subscribe to my YouTube channel if you listen to the audio version of this. And I have a lot of exciting things in the works right now. I actually might make a Discord, which is probably the easiest thing for me to make. So I'm going to keep you guys updated on my Twitter whenever I have my Discord out there. Um, and a few other things I'm working on. I'm going to have them all announced uh, when they're nearly finished. So be on the lookout for a bunch of stuff this first quarter. And I thank you guys so much for watching. Thank you guys so much for listening. And I'll see you in the next episode.